This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Single Moment in Time, and the author is Stella Butler, and Stella joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Stella. How you doing? Well, we're going to talk about your poetry and story form, this book that you've titled A Single Moment in Time, but first of all, we want to find out what was your motivation, you know, why did you write this book? I had the urge to write my heart out after being sick for so long. My motivation came from hurt, anger, frustration, and the need to be loved. Now, you say it appeals to an adult audience. What do you mean by that? It appeals to adult audience because it deals, it deals with um, adult fantasize, love, betrayal, mental pain, and physical pain. And I go into deep details on the subject. Now, this comes from some of your experiences that you've gone through your sickness and you've, you've had some struggles. So this comes out of your heart and, and uh, comes out of uh, just trying to express yourself, correct? Yeah, and my imagination fantasizing. Okay, now we have four chapters, and each chapter looks like it has maybe a theme, right? Right. Like chapter one, I dream of. Now, is there a poem in there that you could share with us? Smiles of Joy. There's a man called David, far different than any man I've known. David likes to watch the lightning flash across the sky. He likes to hear the roar of thunder, cry out loud. David loves to watch the wind swiftly sweep through the trees. He says when someone dies, he can hear the angels cry. I'm not the greatest-looking guy, he'd say. So look past this to find my heart. But I warn you, there you will find many scars. Now that you understand this, you may look into my face. There you will find no tears, only smiles of joy. He sounds like an interesting person. He was. David was. He was just, he was a wonderful, awesome person. A friend of yours. Yeah, real good friend. And those were his words. And so, uh, are these poems come out of your association with friends and and uh, family, and as as you say, your just your imagination. Well, if someone tells me something, and we're in a conversation, and in that conversation, if it strikes. Something that they say strikes me, and it just it just gives me that deja vu feeling. I can write a poem from that saying. I mean, it, it's it's something that just happens within me, and from those words and knowing that individual, that person, I bring their expression to life. So, is that something that comes easily for you? Yes, I mean, if I'm around a person 
for a certain amount of time and it's something about that person, I am able to write about that person. It only it only takes a sentence uh, or a certain smile or gesture. But if it strikes me and they say something that really means something that I think needs to be heard, I'm able to write that. Now, in Chapter 3, the heading is, If I Can't Have You, and one of your poetry in short form, as you call it, is titled, So Hot. So why don't you read that and explain why you wrote it? Okay, So Hot. He was so hot, but I was not. He suggested taking me for a ride. That's what I wanted to hear. He kissed my neck and never missed a spot. From there, he caressed my car light, causing the beans to become bright. He said, what can I eat? I melted to my feet, and my tires parted, and I turned on my engine, then shifted into gear. I sprung a wheel, and I decided to go for the thrill. This poem came from a little incident <laughs> that happened, and, you know, I wasn't feeling that well, but he kind of caressed me on to give me what I needed. So I mean, you, you've personified the car in this poem. Right. That's what I did. That's my metaphor. I turned a situation between a man and a woman, and made it a car so that a person could take this form either way they wanted. But, you know, it was just kind of like bits and pieces will let you know, okay, it's not a car, but is it a car? But then when you get down into it and you talk about certain things like uh, eat and you can use your imagination like the car lights, what it should have been, um, um, uh, which I don't say the car light. Um, you can use your imagination on that. I mean, it could be anything. It could be the car lights. It could be whatever, you know. In your next chapter called Listen to Me, one of your poems is titled Don't Bind Me. Now let's do that one and explain okay. which, why you wrote it, what you were feeling when you wrote it. Okay. Do not bind me. I do not want to be bound. I'm a person wanting to grow out of this. I'm a bird floating with wings. It's time to stop. I hear my ancestors whispering in the distance, saying, demand, be not afraid. I want to ask many questions with, with wisdom. I need clear answers, a peace of mind. There's a large word to consume, teacher, preacher, lover, to be loved, have a child, all things are possible, set me free, do not bind me. This is the way I was feeling as I was coming out of my sickness. I felt like I had just been bounded down. I was just, I needed to grow. I needed to learn things, all the information, all the technology and stuff that I've, I've, I lost over all those years. 
I can go back as far back as the five years that I know that it's just like a blank to me. I was in the world, but not really in the world, walking around like in a coma-like state. And so, therefore, a lot of things I missed. I even, the sad part is my mother died during this a year before this. I had so little memories of all I remember is going to the funeral, sitting up there, and I was asleep. My child came in. I didn't even re- realize my child came in from Connecticut to a year later, you know, after my awakening, you know. And I haven't been out of this state no more than it's probably about eight or nine months now to the most that I'm, I've come back to reality and my mind is it's just rushing so. I'm just trying to catch up. Sometimes it, it runs past, I guess I would say, my me. And it's, it's just, I, I, don't, I don't know what it's to say about you, it. You sounded angry when you were reading that. You, all of a sudden your emotions changed. I was. Because I, I go back to think about it. Because I was hurt. I was hurt just like I have the poem, I, I feel your pain. And then I have, I mean, I feel your pain because I was in, in that condition. I mean, you know, when I see people that can't walk, people that have trouble talking, people that are sick, and I know what they, they're going through, and I know how people will treat you when you're like this, and then there are some people that will give you all the love and care, and then you got these people that don't understand, and they just simply begin to forget about you. They give up on you. And that's where my anger comes in at. Everybody needs to be loved, regardless. That is my feelings there. You know, that's why I, I, I get over emotion when it comes to that poem. Do not bind me. Let me fly. Give me a chance to make up some of it. I can't get it all. Just let me grow. Now, in Chapter 2, which is entitled, Feel This, with exclamation point, in fact, double exclamation point, what uh, poem would you like to look at there? This one right here. Woman, I love you, he tells me. I'm the man standing on the side. He's the man that stands with you. I've given you all my love, and I wonder what he's given you. I made you feel, and I know you felt it. Remember at one point, he didn't even care. I made passionate love for you, something he wasn't doing. I need your love. I've gone out of my way to give to you the desire you need. He just wants you because you're different now. I made you become sexy. I worked so hard. And now you're enticing. He wants to take you away. I'll never let him have all of you. I'm so angry. I'll never let him have all of you. I'm so angry. And I can't stand to see him touch you. Woman, I love you. Maybe he does too. But I swear to you, I don't think he can make you content like I do. Woman, I need you. But I won't make you choose. I'll do anything for you. That poem comes from my imagination. This poem is the state of mind I was feeling because at the time I, I was overweight 
I, I needed attention. Um, I had a friend that put all this attention into me. Um, they made me feel good about myself. Give me, they gave me the motivation to um, be desirable, to feel sexy, and all the things that any woman needs to feel. This is where this this poem comes from. And this is what any woman wants, I mean, will want a man to tell you, woman, I love you. In other words, this is what I wanted to be told. Woman, I love you, he tells me. This is what I wanted. Let's take one more. What would that be? One more. The way I feel, I glance upon your face. And your eyes have so much passion inside. When your eyes are only on me, your expression is so pleasing, especially when you smile. Your soft, light, tan skin is so gentle to lay a finger on. I crave until I touch thee. I enjoy caressing your thick, fine gray hair. And when I do, I forget about everything other than you. The way you skillfully release kisses upon my neck and the moment you touch my body, I feel like I'm dreaming. And when your lips press against mine, just before you slide your hands under my dress, it makes my body want to rest. The way you arouse me with the repeated stimulations from your hands and the stroking from your fingers upon my private success sends electricity within me. And I start to moan and began taking deep breaths, my body falls and catches on fire because I'm burning with desire. Regardless, it's unfair. You will be my only lover, even if you leave this love affair. You have given me something to fantasize about, which I will always remember. This I swear. And this poem is one of my favorites because it deals with a individual's face. And um, when I think about the face, it really stimulates me because it, this person is really very, um, let's say they're intense. This person was an intense person, very romantic. And the part I like about it is, um, I guess, the gray hair. Great hair. Any concluding thoughts, Stella, about your poetry and story form? Um, any concluding thoughts? I would suggest you go out, buy the book, see what you like in it, think about it, fantasize about it. You say okay. once you start, I promise you won't be able to put it down. Right. Well, Stella, tell us how to get your book. Um, it's available at Amazon.com, BondsandNovels.com, Orders.com, um, and, of course, Off the House. Um, also, you can order it from your favorite bookstore. Well, Stella, we appreciate you being on Author Talk. Okay, and I appreciate being here. That was Stella Butler. She is the author and the poet of her book, a single moment in time.
You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. They flourish on a secluded farm 3,500 feet above sea level in Hinoteca, Nicaragua. These coffee beans grow in the shade of hardwood trees and banana plants, thriving in the rich organic soil. Shade-grown coffee grown at higher elevation has a better quality. There are two benefits, a slower growing cycle for the plants that allows time for the sugars in the bean to mature, and the natural composting from the nitrogen-producing canopy. And now you can order this international gourmet coffee online at NicaraguasBestCoffee.com. Order 12-ounce and 16-ounce bags or save with a discounted price by ordering in large quantities. Three different coffee beans available, Arabica, Marigold Gaipe, and Green Oro. Prepare to enjoy the richness and the soothing flavor of some of the best-tasting coffee in the world. Order online at NicaraguasBestCoffee.com and enjoy Central American flavor, aroma, and richness of Nicaragua's Best Coffee. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing editorial services and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Creative Blogging for Personal or Business Improvement. How do you do that? (laughs) And the author is Paul William Johnson. Hello, Paul. Welcome to Author Talk. Well, hello. Well, how do you do that? That's that's uh that's the big question, right? Um, right especially right. in this technological age. Right. So why did you write this book? Well, I wrote this book because I I I learned uh some things from my grandmother early on that have have served me well all of my life and I've owned businesses and so forth. And you know worked for large companies, been president of large companies and so forth. And uh these techniques that my grandmother taught me have served me well all through my life. And I've noticed that there's a lot of people that just need, need a little help to get going. So this book was, was written for people that, that feel trapped in the same old issues in their personal life or business and need to find a way out. And this book shows them how you do that. 
How do you do that? And you seem to really like Einstein. Right. I, I, I do like Einstein. and uh, He always sounds, you know, I mean, you think of Einstein, you go, well, he's not going to be simple. <laughs> right. Well, Einstein was very simple. And uh, the reason that Einstein seems complicated to most people is they tell you what Einstein thought, all these long for- formulas and so forth. Uh, so if you're trying to focus on what he thought, you might might, might not get it. But if you fo- ever focused on what he thought or how he thought, I mean, it would be a you know it would give you a whole different perspective. And if you focus on how how did Einstein get his his answers to his questions, you'll find that it's really very simple. And I've I mean, I've outlined in this book uh, exactly how out. Einstein did it, and how everybody can do it. And uh, Einstein, you know, was very good with imagination, which all of us know are aware of. But he, the reason for that was he said that imagination is a preview of life's coming attraction. So those things that we focus on with our imagination actually, actually appear in our lives. And if if you look at that aspect of Einstein, he gets a lot more interesting and a lot more down-to-earth. And, of course, you're talking about creative solutions, and a lot of people don't think they're very creative. That, that's right, and, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book, because we're all creative. We all have the same creative abilities. Some of, them use, some of us use those abilities to our, our benefit. Very few do. But most of us use those abilities to our detriment. When Franklin Roosevelt said, the only thing to fear is fear itself, he understood how important imagination was in creating uh, the realities that we experience in our lives. So that, that uh, we need to focus on these, on these creative abilities that we have and just learn how to use them and recognize that, yes, we have been using it wrong. Uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt didn't want people to, to use fear because he knew that fear would create the things that they feared in their lives. And this book goes on to explain how some of the details of, of how to create what you want and how to deliberately create what you want, not how, how to just create and unknowingly what you don't want. So it's a how-to book. That's right. What, is, what is collective consciousness? Well, collective consciousness could easily, more easily be explained as, if you've ever watched a group of children playing in a group, you notice how excited and how how involved they are in their play, and they don't even notice anybody around them, and they're, you know, just having a great time. So they formed a little, in that group, they formed a little collective consciousness. And the power of that collective consciousness can easily be seen when you compare it to a kid that's just playing by himself, he's not near as excited about what he's doing. He's not near as animated, and he's not using his creative abilities like they are to, you know, to play their game. So that unity creates power. That's correct, and that's why if we're going to create unity, if we can set up a, a, a unified group and blog with them, a closed group, it's amazing what we can find out and accomplish, if, you know, if that's our goal rather than just to, to talk about something that's some problem or some issue or so forth that, that's too big for us to solve. Another word for this creativity is intuition. 
Right. Now, we always think of women having that, but men have intuition? Oh, absolutely. And the only thing, the reason women are talked, or, or it's, it's uh, commonly believed that women have more intuition than men is that, that they're more relaxed and their, their, their minds are usually quieter so that it's easier for them to hear that still, small voice. That, that, you know, that, that speaks, and that was the voice that spoke to, you know, to, to Albert Einstein. So men are usually, you know, more involved in their work, and, and they, they, don't, they, they don't think that intuition has much value when if they actually discovered it, they would find it has magnificent value. And the way to, way to describe intuition for a person that, you know, that's not used to thinking in those terms would be that if you've ever had a problem and tried to solve it, and you've looked in the Internet, you've looked, talked to people, you've talked to everybody else, you've worked all night, and you still can't find the answer. And when you've kind of worked yourself to the end of your rope and you can't think anymore, you might lay down as soon as your hit, head hits the pillow or, or something. All of a sudden, the solution pops into your mind because it's quiet enough so you can, still, so you can hear that still, small voice. So intuition is just being aware that that still small voice is there and learning how to listen to it. So it's within all of us, and it's also important, especially with this blogging technique, is that we get involved in problem-solving groups. That's right, that we should be involved in problem-solving groups. I mean, that could be in your family. In our family. It could be in anything in your personal life doesn't necessarily have to be a business. But if you can brainstorm in a group, write things down, uh, talk it over in a group, all of a sudden you'll find that there's, that there's much more power than we'd have individually. And this ha- this, we have to be careful with this power because it can be applied negatively or positively. Now, if, if we start complaining or talking about each other in a negative way, then that can be very destructive to the whole group. But if we focus on our family and those things positively that, that, that we all agree on, or where we'd like to go or what we'd like to learn or, or how we'd like to create our own destiny, then we'd be amazed at all of the things that would start popping into our minds that we could share with each other and that, that would generate more ideas and so forth. And that's how, that's how this group, uh, collaborative group works. And the blog, is that a complex thing to learn? No, a blog is just, is just communicating uh, uh, with a... Um, in the, this, this blogging I'm talking about is just is a little bit different than the open, open blogging that you, that you read about. This, these are more closed about blog. It's like communicating back and forth between a, a closed group of people. Only thing you do it on the computer... So instead of sitting in a circle in maybe your home and kind of talking back and forth, obviously you're using technology. That's right. And you see, and the reason this is important for business is if you've ever had, you know, been on value engineering teams and so forth, you know, which I have, is that we collect people from all over the world, you know, to sit in, in our room on our value engineering team. And about two-thirds of the expense is, is just getting people there and getting them back again. And a lot of the times we can't get the people that we want because their schedule has made it, uh, you know, impossible for them to get there. So this way, your physical location doesn't make any difference where you are. You can still get in. 
and this is any any individual and you know or or any business now you have a a section you have a chapter called anticipating change right cycles of change now boy that that sounds like crystal ball stuff well see and a lot of people these some of these these terms have been they say it's crystal ball so they never consider it but everything has a cycle and if you don't believe me just try not to breathe out after you breathe in to see how long you last <laughs> <laughs> or if if you say well the sun can't went down it's never going to come up again <laughs> well then <laughs> Pretty soon, after you start looking at everything that has a cycle, you'd say, yes, yes, everything does have a cycle. Let's just go look and see if we can find that cycle. We have business cycles. We have personal growth cycles. We have cycles where money comes into our lives easily. We have cycles where money goes out so fast we can't believe it. Uh, but, <laughs> but we know this is all cyclical. So, and by knowing this, we know that that when we have good times, we should always put something away because we know the cycle could be could turn turn down. And when we have good times, some people think it'll be good forever, and they go out and uh, mortgage themselves to the eyeballs and so forth. When they should be just doing the opposite. And I cover that in this uh, on, on personal personal cycles in the book and how you can how you can actually time those cycles. And the way to time breathing, as soon as you can't breathe in anymore or hold your breath, you know you're going to breathe the other way. <laughs> so it's easy to see cycles if you just focus on them and say, yeah, what is, what is this cycle? And, and the stock market actually leads the business cycle, and I explain that. So if you see the stock market starting to, 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 go, to go down, and I explain that by cross, when the 200-day moving average of the price crosses by 100 then you know that the next long-term cycle is going to be down. So if you see that happening, which happened uh, a year ago, February or something, then you better be kind of secure in your job. You know, if you want to get, if you want to move around, you should do it. And uh, this book tells you how to do that, how to manage your life so that no matter what the cycle is, it can always, the cycle can be a benefit to you, not a detriment. Well, when you talk about debt cycles, what does that mean? Right, that means that 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 um, if you look in history, that uh, there's there's been there's been debt cycles where where debt has gotten out of control, and then uh, the the banks have lent too much money to people that couldn't pay it back, and then all of a sudden uh, the uh, the banks became became insolvent. Everything. You know, kind of went hot pretty soon. Then at the bottom of that cycle, when everybody thought that you know that the end of the world was near, then it kind of turned around and, and started up again. And the the Federal Reserve was actually uh, uh, instituted to try to stop these cycles, and um, so that the, these this they're boom and bust type cycles. You can go through history and you can see all kinds of cycles. Uh, the tulip bulb cycle, where tulip bulbs went up to mega dollars per you know per bulb until all the money in Europe was in a tulip bulb and then they collapsed overnight. Well historically we're we're full of of, of cycles that, of debt type cycles where people thought that they could get rich quick uh, by by borrowing money uh, in when when they should actually be using that money to pay their debts down at that time. And I explain this in the book how how do, how you do that, how you do that. 
and how important that is, is to use these cycles to your, your benefit. Because today, most people have too much debt, and the economy is going downhill. Well, about the time they think, you know, it's the end of the world, it'll start going up the other way. Well, if you have a lot of cash and everything, you can maybe buy a house for half price, or you can do a lot of other things. So if you had cashed up at the top of the cycle, you'd be sitting to where you could take advantage of that right now. But that takes, but that, but that takes an attitude of understanding cycles and probably doing the opposite of what the herd is. And I explain the herd instinct and how that works in, in my book. Now we have to always kind of be aware of what the herd is doing and, and go the other way because sooner or later the herd usually you know, stampedes over some cliff and it's uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be with the herd when that happens. <laughs> no. So what's simplify, simplify, simplify? I guess you're trying to tell us something. Right. What I'm what I'm trying to say there is is that that and especially with computers is that that most most people think the more complex something can be, uh, you know, the the more the the, the better they're going to be. But if you look at what Einstein said, is he said that that the simplest is always the best. And even going back into the 1300s, there was a philosopher philosopher named Occam. <laughs> and he first uh, postulated the idea that that if you're looking at a bunch of solutions, uh, if you go through and just sort them out on which one is the simplest, most of the time the simplest solution will always be the best. And with the computer uh, today we have we have we can look at complex solutions in almost everything, and there's a lot of free information available on the internet. So pretty soon we come we get on a on a mouse wheel of looking for answers, looking for answers. When the simplest answer is the best, it's just using our intuition, and we'll burn out on that mouse wheel if you know if if we just keep looking and looking for answers, because there'll always be more more data to to. Uh, to look at because there's always something else that comes up if you do an uh, if you do an internet search. We have about a minute left. What would be your advice about selecting this problem-solving team? Uh, I think the thing to do with the problem-solving team is that in in a team or in life, it's important that we surround ourselves with people of. Of, of like mind, and that, and I don't mean uh, everybody has to think the same. We want diversity in thinking, but emotionally, we have to be on on the same wavelength of if if we're going to select a team or get into a uh, a group. And a lot of times, families are on the kind of the same wavelength. Maybe politically, they're the same. They have the same ideas about debt and about money and so forth. So when you get people with a lot of the same ideas already, if you want to venture out in some creative area, then it's a lot easier because these these little conflicts aren't you know aren't there. So if if we want to set up a team or work, uh, you know, in our our personal lives, we should make sure that we always surround ourselves with with people of of like mind. We need to kind of vibrate at the same frequency. And then we can take those frequencies and multiply them and get out and do the, almost the impossible. What might seem impossible to some people. But when we get done, we'll say, oh, yeah, we, we know how you do that. And that's what this book's about. Paul, how do we get your book? You can get my book from, uh, it's on Amazon.com. It's on, uh, you can get it directly from Author House. 
Um, you can get it from in, in, in any bookstore, and it has a, uh, a hard copy, it has a soft copy, and it has the ebook. And uh, Author House is uh, is in, in Bloomington, Indiana, or you can go to www.authorhouse.com or Amazon.com or uh, BarnesandNoble.com and so forth. Well, Paul, we appreciate you being on Author Talk. Well, thank you. I appreciate the chance to visit a little bit about my book, because I'm excited about it. That's why I wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was Paul William Johnson. He's the author of his book, Creative Blogging for Personal or Business Improvement. How do you do that? You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, A Book of Verse. And the poet is Michael Ale- and the poet is Michael Alexander, and Michael joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Michael. Hi. Well these How are you doing? I'm doing great. These are a lot of thoughts that you've had through the years. You started writing in October of 1976, but uh, something very dramatic, tragic happened to you five years before, and I guess that's the reason that you've kept writing your thoughts down. Is that true? And share with us what happened. I'm not really sure if that was the reason. It probably was, but... 
Yeah, it probably was, but I, but uh, essentially what happened was five years prior to that, I, uh, my wife was going on a vacation with her sister and our three children to uh, Vermont, and um, my wife was the driver. I had to work because I had a new job, <laughs> no vacation time, uh, and they never made it. My wife's sister, our oldest daughter, was three, and our youngest son, who was five months, were tragically killed in a one-car accident. And your wife was injured seriously? No. No, she was... No one was wearing seatbelts, because back in 71, you had... You didn't have the single seatbelt. You had a lap belt, and then you had a shoulder belt, and you had no laws. And so everyone but my wife, for a reason, was thrown from the car. She was, the car flipped over a half a dozen times, and somehow she managed, at 60 miles an hour, somehow she managed to hold on to the steering wheel, and her left hand was pinned under the hood when the car ended up, flipped over on the hood, and her left hand was, and under it, so she was not thrown under the car, and she could not get out of the car by the grace of God. Now, your oldest son was he with them? Yeah, um, he was with them. He was. Uh, his name is Mike the Second. We called him Toddy at the time. He was going through his terrible twos, so. At the time of the accident, he was sitting on his aunt's lap in the front seat. When she was thrown from the car, she held him like a football. She refused to let him go. And when she hit the asphalt, she broke the fall and saved his life. Essentially, she laid down her life for his. Mm, My goodness. Her name was Anne. So five years later, you began keeping uh, your your notes, your thoughts, and through the years, you have written different verses. Why do you think you've been doing that? What what prompted that? Well, all this writing through the years, and these are very short little uh, poems. Uh, some of them are are just one liners. Yeah. Why did I do that? Uh, these were just thoughts that popped into my head, and I just wrote them down on a small pad, stuffed them together in a, in a spiral pad, which I still have, and eventually transferred them to the spiral pad. And this winter, I'm retired now, I've decided to put them on a computer. So we're talking about 33 years of jotting down these thoughts. And I'm still writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you are. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure you are. Uh, things, they're observations on life. and you know, um, I, I still have things that pop into my head, and um, I just write them down. Like, I don't write them, I just write them down. And do you read them from time to time? Oh, yeah. No, oh, yeah. I, uh, I review them because uh, I think it's important. 
Well, they say practice what you preach. Well, practice what you write, too. You say that true fulfillment comes only from giving. Now, is that what your writings reflect, this kind of lifestyle? That's what I've really learned. I'm 61 years old, and that's what I'm beginning to learn, the difference between happiness and fulfillment. What is that difference? The way I see it, happiness is it's a feeling that you get, but it's more temporary than fulfillment. Let's see if I can give you an example. Um, if I buy myself an ice cream cone, it tastes good. Boy, I feel happy for a minute. But if I want for uh, fulfillment, something that lasts even longer, I find that by giving, I can get fulfillment. And, if, and it, just, it feels better. feels just as good initially, better, and it lasts longer. Do you have your first poem in front of you? No, I don't, but go ahead. Okay, let me read it, and you tell me what you were feeling, or uh, some of them are very obvious what they mean, but this is October of 1976. You said, I am my feelings. If I choose to swallow them, I become less. How can I truly love you if I do not love me first? Ah, that's a a (laughs) two-parter. Two-parter, okay, give us both parts. Okay, I am my feelings. If I choose to swallow them, I become less. What do you mean by become less? How can I explain that? I become less of a person because every person has feelings. And you need to share them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And my mistake was, uh, after the accident, I had being 61, um, my generation, the man was supposed to swallow his feelings and get on with life. Well, that doesn't work too well. Yeah, that was that old farm mentality, I think. Oh, my fa- my father it. was the same <laughs> way. Father the same way. No, oh, I don't think sure, I, I sure. never saw my father cry. I saw my father cry only once, and that was when he came home from Boston, uh, Mass General Hospital, when his mother died. He walked through the front door of the house where we were sitting in the living room, and my heart broke. Because he said nothing, he walked into the kitchen with tears in his eyes. Right. Once in all his life. Oh, my goodness. Well, here's another one. In May of 1977, you said, people fall in love, they don't jump. Or at least, they shouldn't jump. Oh, yes. I like that one. Oh, good. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> that, oh. that really, that is, that's... That's uh, an interesting visual. Yes, that's a, a, and a lot of people probably jump. <laughs> that's oh, why. That's yeah. why we have so many divorces oh, yeah. or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the time, I had been divorced from my first wife. Uh, tragically, a therapist once told me that when a, when a loss like this happens of children, they say that two-thirds of the time, the marriage ends up in divorce. My goodness. I guess I was, yeah, I was in the two-thirds. 
So in May of 77, I had found another woman. Uh, her name was Deborah. And um, I thought I fell in love with her, but maybe I jumped. At least they shouldn't jump. Right, right. In other words, take take your time. Well, here's one in January of 1980. No, time won't heal a broken-hearted me. Only love from me, from people, from God will. Right. That was actually, I don't know if it was a hit at the time, but Karen Carpenter uh, had a song entitled Time Won't Heal a Broken-Hearted Me. And that sort of inspired me to write that verse. Yeah, I, I don't believe that time alone can heal broken hearts. Uh, I think you have to use other people. Well, first of all, you have to be willing to let other people and let God help you heal your broken heart. Here's one in October of 1982. Before God can lift us up where we belong, we must offer him our hand. Oh, yeah. Okay. I love music. Uh, music has been very therapeutic for me throughout the, uh, the healing, growing process. And that was based on a song by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warren called God Lift Us Up, Where We Belong. I, re- I remember that. You mm-hmm. remember? Yeah. Oh, yes. Did you like the song? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, was a great, it was an inspirational song. Right. Well, it inspired me to add that to it. Cannot lift anybody up until they send a hand upward or outward him and that means being willing to change now that kind of goes with the scripture knock and it shall be opened unto you you have to knock first oh yeah yeah and sometimes you have to knock several times if you do which is to say if you don't get an answer the first time knock again Uh, i don't think god considers it rude if you knock a gazillion times no, I don't believe he does at all. I no. Mean, we would never turn away our children if they kept asking us, you know, no. if they well, kept asking us we, something. Yeah, I think eventually you take a time out and sit down and say, okay, let's talk about this. Right. Yeah, it may not be the best thing for them, or, of course, God knows perfectly what's best for us, even though right. we, we may be a little short-sighted. Oh, yeah, often are, yeah. Now, when this all happened, and it's all these years later, and people asked you, well, how did you live through it? You had an interesting response. Oh, yeah. My experience, and other people I'm sure have had other experiences, is that after, let's say, 38 years, um, I've come to appreciate that you don't get over it. Um, you live around the tragedy, and I'm an amateur astronomer, and to use a rather crude analogy, for me it's been like, okay, the Earth revolves around the sun 365 days, 
and every August 17th, the accident happened on August 17th, at quarter of seven, in my mind, the kitchen phone rings, um, and it's, it's that the phone call that no parent wants to get, and uh, it's, um, that's the bad news. But the good news has been for me that unlike the planets, planet Earth, imagine I'm planet Earth, with each passing year, uh, my orbit around the tragedy has gotten further and further and further away, not in the sense of time, but in the sense of intensity. How loud does that phone ring and how well can I cope with it? You know, I never really got over it. Uh, I've uh, learned to live around it. Let's uh, close with this one verse on February of 1999. You said, we all have our crosses to bear, but think of your cross as a tool, a tool of faith and love. Jesus did with his cross, and look what he built with it. Oh, yeah. That was... uh... I, um, yeah, I suppose I can tell you. It's, a, it's an interesting story. In 1996, I went to uh, my parish priest. His name is Father Jeffries. And I asked him, does St. Augustine's have either a prayer group or a men's group? And he says, no, right now we don't have either. And so I started talking about a prayer group. Uh, ideas I had for starting a prayer group. He's taken this all in, my suggestions. He's nodding and agreeing, and at one point in the conversation, once he's convinced, he says to me, and of course, this prayer group would have to have a leader, and that's you. And I said, oh, no, no, I can't do that. I'm too shy for that. Well, (laughs) He talked me into it or led me into it. I established what we called an anonymous uh, intercessory prayer group. And the principle of it was, was basically put your prayers in writing. You don't have to sign your name. You don't even have to uh, use first names um, or no names. Put it in a prayer envelope pre-printed to St. Augustine's and uh, mail it, or just drop it in the uh, offertory basket. I was involved from 99 to, oh gosh, 2001. So, uh, oh, excuse me, from 96 to 2001. And in 1999, at one of the prayer group meetings, I got up and I just started talking about tools. If you look at the letter T, lower case, one could argue that it looks like a cross. I thought, hey, think of your crosses in life as tools. What can you do with them? Well, Michael, we really appreciate talking about your book, a Book of Verse. Tell us how to get it. Oh, gosh. You can get it uh, from Author House online as a paperback or an ebook. And I understand it will be or is in some of the bookstores. I guess what I would say to anybody, the book isn't just geared to uh, people who have suffered tragic losses. 
but my purpose in writing it was okay if you find one verse one page at least one verse one page that's useful in your life i think you'll find it's worthwhile well thank you michael we appreciate you being on author talk thank you that was michael alexander he is the poet of his book called a book of verse